0: Hi, and welcome to Motorsport Now. My name is Jay Paveley. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Karun Chandok. I'm so excited that I managed to get such a big-time guest. Woohoo! So uh, hit the big time now, guys. I hope everyone listening enjoys this. And please give me your feedback at the end of the podcast and get in touch on my Instagram at Motorsport. Without further ado, here he is.
1: Hi, I'm Karun Chandok, a racing driver and commentator. Um, and yeah, happy to be on the podcast.
0: Yes, thank you so much for coming. Really excited. So I'm trying to ask you a few more questions that maybe not everyone else has asked, but I'm going to ask some questions again that people you have been asked a hundred times before. But um, I understand your family were all very much involved with motorsport and that's how it started. But your dad did rallying. Why did you do rallying as well? Why did you go for racing?
1: But my dad used to race and rally, um, as I think a lot of people in India did in that time. You know, it was, it was all um, not as professionally, professionally organized as it is in Europe, for example. Um, so, you know, they, they were just trying to drive any, at any opportunity they got. Um, so my dad, you know, did, did both when I was growing up. So I spent a lot of time both at the racetrack and going to rallies with him. Uh, my granddad did a lot of rallying before that. Um, but for me, I was I was always interested in in circuit racing. You know, I'd like to do a bit of rallying just for a bit of fun now. But for a for a career path, I had never thought about it. You know, I I loved the 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 precision involved with going lap after lap after lap, finding that last tenth um, on a, on a racetrack and looking for the the finer details, which you can never do. You know, when you've gone through a, a rally stage once or twice, um, even if you repeat it, so. Yeah, I think for me there was a there was a great appeal to to you know going on a racetrack in the and, and also chasing that dream of Formula One, you know. I think that was that, that was a big carrot for me, um, seeing Alan Prost and Knight and Senna and Nigel Mansell, you know, these they were my heroes. As as much as I admired Colin McRae and Carlos Sainz, um as well, but I, I think for me I was always I was always very motivated by Formula One
0: yeah for sure yeah for a lot it certainly is the dream and apparently you didn't start by karting first no no
1: no not at all no when i grew up in india we had no go-kart tracks we had no um kart races championships nothing um they do have them now you know we've got two stroke two stroke Rotax championships things like that but we we didn't have any of this when i started out which is when i look at it in hindsight it's a huge disadvantage you know nowadays if you look at um forget even the the verstappen and maclaren but even people of my generation were you know people lewis and Rosberg and and that era of drivers the years of karting that they'd done gave them a huge advantage you know they they already had that feel of new tyres and old tyres and the grip and and how to drive in the wet and with changing conditions and i think it 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 certainly creates this muscle memory as well that is so deeply ingrained and inset in the driver's minds that it really plays a big part.
0: Yeah, for sure. And kids start from like four years old nowadays, don't they as well? So yeah, it's a massive time that you didn't have. Um, And could you just give me some brief highlights from the steps from when you did start competing, or even actually, if you want to tell me about your first race, that'd be really interesting. You used to remember that. So
1: my, yeah, my first race was um, in the Indian national championship. So When I turned 16, that was the age that you were allowed to get um, a circuit license in India at the time. Um, And and I actually ended up driving both in saloon cars and um, single-seaters, you know, parallelly. And uh, so the first race was in the saloon cars. And uh, I I remember I qualified on pole, but I lost a place at the start, and I spent most of the race in second place before um, I overtook somebody. Uh, on the final lap, actually, uh, and ended up winning my first race, which was pretty cool. That is pretty Um, cool. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, I was still in high school at the time, 16 years old, and um, that that got me going. So, I only did one year of racing in India, and then moved on to to race in Asia, and then come up to Europe. So, um, yeah, it was was a fun time, you know. There were a lot of days of just my dad and I going to the racetrack with a couple of mechanics, and and, and there were really fun times, you know, for me to get get to learn how to drive on a racetrack. And um, you know, I think it was, it, I was very lucky that I lived in the same city as the racetrack in India. You know, at the time, India only had one track, and I, it, you know, nice. fortunately for me, I was only forty-five minutes away from it, so I could go early in the morning before school. So sometimes I'd go at six in the morning, you know, leave home at five five, get to the track by five forty-five before sunrise go testing from sort of 6 till 7.30, make it to school for 8.30. Um, you know, it was all a bit manic. And then go back in the afternoon at sort of 3 in the afternoon after school. So um, it, it was all a bit, you know, hectic, to be honest. But it, it, um, I think, it, you know, when you're young at that age, you would do anything when you're just starting to chase this dream. You know, and I was getting to drive race cars, which was which was my dream at the time. Um, and then I raced in Asia for a year in, in uh, 2001, uh, won the championship there and then came to Europe to race in, in Formula 3 for a few years. Um, and then uh, at the end of 2005, I pretty much run out of money. You know, I'd done a few races in World Series and A1 GP, but I had no sponsorship, no money to carry on. And um, I ended up going back to Asia for 2006 and did a, a season of racing there uh, and won the championship in the, in the Renault V6 Series out there. And uh, off the back of that I, I got a deal with Red Bull to be on their junior program, and then joined um, their junior team to do g p two and then became you know their f one test driver as well in two thousand and seven and carried on in g p two for two thousand and seven eight nine before getting to f one so yeah that 's um, that's a sort of summary of the of the ride to the to F1, um, and then after that, obviously, I think you, you know any driver you have three careers. Um, you know you have the, the career till F1, the time in F1 if you're lucky enough to get there. Um, you know some obviously have it much longer than others, uh, and then your third career is um, you know the life post F1. Uh, you know which for me, fortunately, I got to go to Le Mans five. You know five five or six times and then do various other, you know, World Endurance Championship and GTs and all sorts of other races around it. So, um, yeah, no, very lucky to have ticked a lot of boxes along the way.
0: A lot of people who have spoke to you said, what a nice guy you are and how good your relationship building is. And you've really spoke to everybody. You've not really burnt any bridges. And obviously, you've had a very successful career as a commentator and presenter as well. Um, but you also manage quite a lot of drivers. Is there anything you try and impress upon them going through this ladder up to F1 or whatever kind of racing they want to do? Obviously, you're very grounded. What yeah. kind of things do you try and impress upon them?
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. Um, you know, I've always had very high standards for myself. In, you know, throughout my racing career, I never wanted people to tell me what I was doing right. I always wanted to know what I was doing wrong. Uh, and I think, you know, I, and I have no time for people who, um, you know, just give you the lip service. And, and and it's the same with any young drivers I work with, you know. And, and sometimes I, I think because I, I'm quite quite thick-skinned and I'm mentally quite strong... Um, you know, I I can afford to be self-critical and I perhaps sometimes forget that other people are not the same. Um, you know, I've, I've occasionally had one or two of my drivers in tears crying in the back of the truck. I gave them a mouthful. Um, so, and I think, you know, but I I think this is the point is, you know, they have to realize if, if they can't take the pressure coming from someone like me who's in their corner and trying to help them and support them, they're not going to cope with the pressure of being in Formula One. You know, it's just not going to happen. And it's it's really interesting, actually, because I, you know, during this lockdown period, I've I've watched um, quite a few sports documentaries and um, two in particular stood out. One was uh, one called The Test about the Australian cricket team. Uh, And there's another one called The Last Dance, which is... um, about the Michael Jordan era in the Chicago Bulls and basketball, and in both of those, you see, you know, either Michael Jordan or in the, in the other version, it's uh, Justin Langer, the coach of the cricket team, and he just ramps the pressure on these guys, uh, on the players, and and you could see them. You know, some of them are they're in fear of of Jordan or, or Justin Langer, but but actually, the ones that aren't in fear are the ones that thrive, and and I think that's and and they it was interesting listening to Michael Jordan make that point of he says look I'm on the same team as you I'm delivering I'm working as hard as I can and delivering at this level Um, I get not everyone has the same talent as me but you've all got to work as hard as me and and he ramps that pressure up and I think it, it makes a really interesting point which is if they can't cope with the pressure from within then how can you cope with the, with the pressure when you get to that qualifying lap and you have to deliver, it's a bit greasy. You've got 30 seconds on the clock. You know, you've got to make it happen. Um, I think that's, it's really important being, you know, mental toughness is so important in sport.
0: Yeah, super. It's, it's very, it's, there's a lot of mind games as well, isn't there, with racing. Obviously, you've got your teammate that you've got to compete against. All the, the I'm trying to think of a better word instead of BS. Got a lot of the lip service, as you said, um, for like uh, just trying to get contracts and sponsors and things like that. Did you find that you maybe thrived in that um, environment then, because you were so self-critical of yourself? Do you think actually, is that what you're trying to put on your younger drivers?
1: Yeah, I think I think I just, you know, I, I, I've been very pragmatic um and and actually i had a teammate in 2012 um david brabham who you know very successful sports car and 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 racing driver in general and he he made a very good point to me which was he says anytime something goes wrong the first thing i always do is ask what could i have done differently and and actually i i never articulated it to myself um, until I heard him say it. And I thought, actually, I do the same, you know, throughout my entire career. Anytime there's been an accident or something's happened, my, my first reaction has always been, right, did I put myself in, in that position to be taken out in that race? You know, if I had qualified two rows further ahead, I wouldn't have been close to fighting with that person and therefore I wouldn't have been taken out. You know, I, I, I find somehow ways to, to try and understand what I could have done better and that's helped me to 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 improve in life. You know, I think it's 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 you find a lot of people who are very quick to blame others or find excuse. You know, the racing driver excuse book is is enormous, and um, I think it's yeah. Sometimes you do end up having to blame somebody else or you blame something else, but. Deep down, I think you first have to look at yourself, and then and go from there. And that, that's something I, you know, I would always encourage other drivers to do.
0: And just going back a little bit, obviously, people would like to know what was the experience like the first time you drove a Formula One car.
1: Well, I still remember. It. I mean, the first time I drove an F one car was a straight line test in in Santapod um, to to, to shakedown for Red Bull. But the first actual test was in Barcelona at the end of two thousand seven, and. Um, it was incredible. I mean, I still remember the first lap thinking, you know, I couldn't believe how light the power steering was. I couldn't believe how agile the car was. Um, and, and, you know, the power wasn't that different to GP2, if I'm honest, but it was the electronics and, and and just the sheer number of people that you were dealing with. You know, you had a department by department. There were so many engineers and so many people that you were talking to, um, which is totally different to a small GP2 team where, you know, it's it's ten, twelve people on a team. Um So I think that was, uh yeah. But it, uh,
0: unfortunately, the audio cut out at this moment. But he is talking about testing with Michael Schumacher.
1: Took Ferrari. He, you know, he'd done his first retirement, shall we say, uh, at Ferrari, and he he came back. And I remember at one point, I followed him out the pit lane. I just thought, this is you know, this is cool. I had the poster of Michael on the, on my bedroom wall. I, you know, he was my hero, and I was. Um, growing up in the in the 90s and so to follow him out of the pit lane um, you know in his Ferrari, that, that was pretty special.
0: That's cool, it makes it all worthwhile doesn't it? A lot of people in lockdown are practicing on sims um, how was your first time in a sim? Because I believe it was with Red Bull and it wasn't quite didn't go quite to plan.
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean I, I in, in 2007 Red Bull were building their first sim, it was in on a, this hexapod in this sort of dome you climbed into and it, it was a very early version of it. And it, I just got ill. I, I, used, I just got motion sickness in it. And I went very sheepishly up to, um, to see Christian Horner and tell him, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, Christian, I can't drive it. I've got, you know, motion sickness. And he sort of, and he just laughed because he said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, neither of our race drivers can do it. You know, Adrian nearly threw up in it. And yeah, it's, uh, um, it, it, it's not something for everyone. So he, he was fine about it. And actually, since then, you know, I ended up doing a lot of stuff down at, um, you know, in, in three other simulators um, with F1 teams later on and never had an issue again. Um, no, I
0: can't and, even deal with Ross's inoculus thing. I hit those, the mask that I can't even do it. It's awful. That makes me feel sick to have no, a fun thing.
1: You get used to it, though, with the 3D. Um, you know, I think that the good F1 sims, you know, they're not, they're not little ones that you have at home. They're... You know they spend a couple of million on them. Um, you know the the level of deep, the level of detail on the the race tracks. You know they're all laser scanned. The level of detail on the curbs, on the cars, on the tire model. You know the physics involved with making the cars and the tires is is so high. Um, the, the attention to detail is so high. So I think they, uh, you, you do get used to them. You know, um, quite recently I just I jumped in the Mercedes simulator last year and had a had a couple of. Um, runs in that and um well i had a morning in it and then felt absolutely fine um you know and so yeah i think you you get used to these sort of things
0: yeah and so have you been obviously keeping fixed you still compete i i've heard that in formula one you have to have a certain amount of body fat you can't go over that is it like do you still really try and stick to a strict routine what was like your peak of training
1: yeah i i I mean in formula one that the at that stage you know you're. Your entire life is dedicated to Formula One and training. I think that you know, life was on hold. You know, outside of that, my I was, it was two sessions a day. You know, I was cycling ten thousand kilometers a day. I was doing loads of running, doing loads of you know work in the gym in between. Uh, you know, when you weren't at races, you were you were training four five hours a day, and all you were doing is you'd wake up, you'd eat, you'd train have lunch, have a nap so your muscles recover because you're exhausted, wake up, train, eat dinner, go to sleep. That was basically your life. Um, and and I think, uh, you know, so now I'm not obviously training to, to that same extent. Um, you know, I think it, other things in life come along, you know, as you, I'm, I'm now doing other businesses, I'm doing some consultancy work, uh, you know, obviously you've got family now, so you go got to you have got to balance the work-life balance. Um, I'm still still trying to make sure that uh, you know, especially with lockdown. Actually, it's been really useful. I've done more cycling in the last six weeks than I've done in the last six or well, the previous six months. So no, it's been great. I've been out for three hours this morning on the bike. It's been great and fine. Um, so yeah, no, still keeping fit. Still you know keeping myself um,
0: ready to jump place, place in ready it. if I need to. Yeah. Yeah, and your little boy as well. How old is he?
1: Now 18 months now.
0: Oh, um, so you out can't...
1: Of, out of control.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's quite chaotic.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he's, he's just chaos. Um, you know, we have no control over him at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's great fun, though. He, he, you know, he's he he's got a real... He's already got a real personality. He knows what he wants, knows what he doesn't want. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's got a bit of spark about him um, and a bit of character about him. There's, there's no... There's no placid, calm period. There's lots of highs and lows. Everything is either amazing and wonderful and he's delighted or he's, uh, he's having a complete meltdown. So, yeah, it's all good fun.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. That. And he's super cute as well. I saw your last Instagram post. He's got, like, a little bomber jacket on. Absolutely yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. I can't say you're selling yeah, character can- to me. <laughs>
1: Uh, he can pull off the uh, the Top Gun look much better than his dad.
0: <laughs> He's gorgeous. Um, and did you have, or do you still have, well, if you're ever competing anything, do you have like a lucky routine at all? Or anything that you take to different races or something that you do? So I think race drivers can be quite superstitious.
1: You know what? I think the superstition thing comes from certain cultures and certain people in certain countries. Uh, I remember a race with a guy called Ernesto Viso um, from Venezuela. And he had all these lucky charms in his pocket that he used to carry around and all sorts of stuff. But um, you know, people like Alex Wirts, you know, he has a he has a thing where he has a lucky uh, I think he has wears one red boot and one blue boot or something like that. But I, I never I never had any of that, to be honest. I think, you know, there was a phase where I I had a lucky pair of gloves i think or no i had a lucky race suit and then my sponsors changed and i changed the color of the race suit and that was the end of that and (laughs) and at that point i just thought this is stupid you know it's it's a crutch right it's a weakness it's it's something that you you feel like you need to support you and help you um but to me i just see that as 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 another variable that and another thing that you're focusing your attention on when actually you should be focusing on your job you know not worried about whether you're wearing your lucky this the other so no i never bothered with any of that
0: your drivers that you're mentoring must have a real strict way of how they're going to do things i can see that now coming through that's uh... well uh
1: no to be honest it's up to them if they if they, well no, i mean if they want to have a a lucky xyz that's totally up to them i you know i don't i don't get involved i don't care about that um but what i don't want to hear is they had a bad qualifying or bad race because they didn't have their lucky underpants on. You know, that's not an acceptable excuse to me. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely a lot. And also just one well, of the last questions is, is just to ask you, what has been the best thing that you have driven in your career?
1: I think the I drove the 2004 um Williams that won Pablo Montoya, won the Brazilian Grand Prix, and and it was extraordinary. Uh I, I got out of it thinking. Jesus Christ, this is just a sensory overload. What an incredible car. It absolutely blew me away. Uh, but also, I think emotionally, the one that was most special was um, I drove Mansell's uh, 1992 championship winning car. Um, you know, for for anyone who grew up, grew up in the 80s and 90s to see, you know, Mansell, Red 5, Silverstone, British Grand Prix, you know, those the, the combination of those four was, was just, it's such a big part of my, you know, my childhood and anyone's childhood, I think, who grew up watching F1 in that era. And uh, I got to drive it on, on quite a few occasions. Um, but certainly the most special ones were at Silverstone. Um, in 2017, I drove it over the British Grand Prix weekend on Saturday after the qualifying and Sunday before the British Grand Prix with the whole crowd there. And um, it, it was really cool to do that.
0: Really special moment and not very last question. Um, Money no object, and you could compete in anything in motorsport. What would you do?
1: Uh, it'll have to be Formula One. You know, it's the pinnacle of the sport. Absolutely, it's it's the um, it's it's the best cars on the best tracks with the best drivers. Um, I'd say, yeah, as as a championship, I think you know you you go to say Formula One, um, and, and you know, there's no, yeah, okay. Yeah. You have the haves and the have-nots and the big teams with more money and the ones that don't and all these sort of things. But you don't have like a handicap system that you have now in sports car racing, for example, You know where they've, they've purposely slowed the Toyota down two seconds a lap in some form of fake handicap system and things like that. So it's, you know, F, F1 F is, um, to me, it's, it's still the ultimate form of motorsport.
0: What a really insightful interview that was. Really interesting. Uh, to hear from current side really just to see about his experience through the whole journey and also how he uh, manages his current drivers as well so hopefully it's something you can take away with you as i hope with all the podcasts you do but obviously he's been there since they done it and still doing it so uh, i hope um, that you have enjoyed it and please get in touch please give me your feedback uh, just contact me on instagram that's the best way at jpa for my support and thank you to the sponsors of the podcast Forest rally experience and test venue, and also to Grippy Motorsport. Speak to you soon and stay safe.